Welcome to Elevate. I'm so happy you're here with me today and I cannot wait to share this episode with you. As an evidence-based coach, mentor, and entrepreneur, I'm obsessed with learning and personal development as it's transformed my entire life, as well as those I get to work with. And to be quite frank, it's literally the entire reason this podcast exists, to feel your growth, gain perspective, and acquire knowledge. So buckle up, friends. You're in for a treat. And as always, thank you for supporting me and the show so we can continue to elevate our own lives as well as those you share this with. Now, let's get into it. What is going on, guys? And welcome back to another episode of Elevate. Today, we have a very exciting guest, Dr. Jonathan Mike, uh, here to talk all things sports supplementation, strength training, and performance. So I'm very excited to have him and pick his brain today. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Can you give us a brief interview for uh, introduction for those of us that might not be familiar with you? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's always good to talk about sports supplements, recovery, education, scientific you know, inquiry and all that stuff. Um, so I'm Dr. Mike. Um, my doctorate's in exercise and sports science, uh, which at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Um, I was a, after that, I was a, uh, or actually before then, um, earlier on in my career, I was a assistant strength and conditioning coach at uh, Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where I helped, um, you know, train a wide variety of sports and athletes with baseball, softball, track, and swimming. And then I went to the University of Louisville, uh, after my master's um, and continue on there more with, like with women's sports. And then I worked in the private sector a little bit and then um, ended up getting a full scholarship to University of New Mexico to get my PhD. Um, and then after that, um, worked in the private sector for a little bit and then actually went back to finish um, my doctorate actually. And then I was a full-time professor at Lindenwood University for two years um, in St. Charles, Missouri, which is on the west side of St. Louis. and taught undergraduate and graduate courses in like X-Viz, Advanced X-Viz, you know, strength and conditioning, um, you know, Advanced um, Strength and Conditioning. And then I was a full-time professor at University of Southern Mississippi for a year uh, and taught undergrad and grad courses in sport nutrition, uh, advanced sports performance. And then I've been out here in Phoenix, Arizona for just over four years. Um, I was teaching a full lo load um, at Grand Canyon University, three or four classes, um, we only have an undergraduate program here, um, but um, doing the same, you know, um, X-Viz, advanced X-Viz, strength and conditioning. And over the last, you know, several years, um, I've um, written 10 book chapters in sport nutrition and strength and conditioning. I've been on, you know, probably close to 100 podcasts over the last, you know, 10 to 12 years. And even really more, the bulk of that's actually been more of the last five to six years. Um, I've been published or interviewed and contributed to every major fitness and consumer strength magazine in the country, been in the Wall Street Journal twice, written for bodybuilding.com, uh, you know, T-Nation, you know, women's health. Um, I was a, one of the top writers for Elite FTS uh, for four years. Uh, I was one of the head writers for Muscle Mag for two years, uh, even before and uh, during and after uh, I finished up my PhD. But the last couple of years, I've actually... Um, stepped out of academia full-time and now I'm doing more, you know, fitness business and entrepreneurship, you know, growing a significant following on Instagram and, you know, social media platforms. Um, I'm writing a book right now uh, for human kinetics on um, strongman training for strength and performance, which is actually a consumer book for trainers and coaches that love, you know, incorporating strongman. And if they have the equipment, you know, great. Here's things that you can actually do with sample programming. If you do not have the equipment, there's a wide variety of exercises and variations that clients and athletes, you know, can do and trainers and coaches that um, can, you know, help with their programming, add variety, add, add some fun, you know, some scientific stuff with that. So we're about halfway done with a book, a co-author friend of mine. Um, so it's been a big project this year. 
Um, and then, um, yeah, lots of other, you know, cool stuff. So yeah, great. Uh, it's a brief background. So uh, great to be on. And I've already got a list of questions that I know that the audience will find very valuable. So thank you for that. Um, so I kind of want to just dive right in. If you know me, you know that I am very much a fan of education. I think that it gets demonized in the space um, where it's like low barrier to entry. You don't need any formal education, blah, blah, blah. But I think that with the right intention, and if you know what you want to do on the other side, it's one of the most valuable things that you can do. And so you've had a ton of education under your belt, different experiences, different arenas from being a student to being a teacher and then traveling and, and doing it in different areas. And so I have a few questions on some of the things that you learned. Um, I know that you talked about first kind of different strength uh, performance, those types of things, and then advanced. And then you talked about, you know, working in baseball and track. And of course, those are different energy systems that we're training Ideally, you're training them both, but in different types of volume, but because it needs to tie over into the sport and performance for that specific athlete. So I'm curious on just to start, what in your undergrad would you say was some of the most important key kind of frameworks or lessons that you learned that you could stack on top of as you furthered kind of the fine tuning three, five percent on top of that as you got more advanced? Yeah, I think you know it's a great question. I think um, you know the the undergraduate you know curriculum and even graduate curriculums in most programs. I mean, they've changed significantly throughout the last you know like ten to fifteen years. Some for the better and some not. But regardless, is that you always have to have a, a high quality foundation with specific topics. Like take energy systems for example. You know, one of the things about like exercise science and just like just physiology, like in general, is that there are certain things and certain principles and aspects of training and even really nutrition that never change, right? I mean, regardless of what book that you read, what article that you read, there's certain aspects that just really never change. These are tried and true, you know, physiological training principles. And energy systems is one of them. I think one of the biggest confusions that people have with energy systems. And, and if you have a high quality, you know, professor that teaches you energy systems and not, you know, this is X, this is this, this is this. Uh, and most people are taught energy systems that they're all, they all function independently of one another. And that's not the case at all. Um, they're, they can be dominant, uh, more or less, depending on what type of activity that, that you're actually using. Um, but, you know, having a strong foundation in undergrad and as you, you know, matriculate further, um, if you think about, and this is what I talk about in a lot of my, you know, conferences, um, depending on the topic, and even with, you know, teaching students over the years, is most people are taught about the what's, right? This is X, this is this, this is that, but they're not taught about why things happen and how things happen. So if you can think about why things happen and how things happen, you can be able to really not only extend and build out more of that information, but you can connect the dots uh, and, and really apply and execute more um, on how it relates and applies to other different types of training methods, other different types of sports, and how people can benefit from training all energy systems really throughout the year. Yeah, one of my biggest focal points, you know, as I've continued to grow in myself and in my education, as well as my own experiences and working with people, I think that one of the biggest things that people struggle with is this binary thinking that it's this. And so when people get into research and they start being evidence-based, a lot of people don't understand population mechanisms, methods, errors, who's analyzing, what is their qualifications. And I think that all of that ties into the results that we see, but people that don't understand that will read an abstract or see PhD on the internet, who's making a claim 
right? And you trust them because they have a blue tick or their doctor, whatever. And they don't understand that that person is actually either incredibly biased for whatever reason. Um, obviously people that invest in research specifically in sports performance, kind of body composition or physique enhancement, that type of financial investment to get from the port is very difficult to achieve. And so you have people that invest in different studies and things. And yeah. so I'd like for you to talk about a little bit about some of the limitations of research, um, things that you saw obviously in your studies and in your research and in your PhD. And I'd love to know exactly what your PhD was in and what research that you went through as well. Yeah, so my great question. Uh, my dissertation was the effects of eccentric contraction durations on, on power production, mass strength and force production. So basically what we did is... Um, we had three groups, um, you know, obviously one was, one was a control group, um, basically that did um, squats twice a week for four weeks with varying levels of eccentric durations with squats. So the first group did, you know, two centric, um, eccentric on squats. The second group was four seconds and the third group was six seconds. So we did a pre and post measure, you know, max strength, you know, jump squats, power production. Uh, and basically, and, and this was only twice a week for four weeks. So it was only a total of eight sessions. So it was actually an acute study. Um, and what we found was, you know, if, if somebody just wants to achieve maximum strength, it doesn't really matter what eccentric duration that they use. It doesn't matter. If all you care about is max strength, it doesn't matter. But when you get into the realms of, you know, RFD, which is rate of force development and power production, uh, you know, and, and velocity, it, it actually does matter. Um, mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're wanting to gain additional power production, you know, the two and four second eccentric duration, uh, and really, if we get a little bit more, you know, uh, um, uh, more uh, micro, um, the three to five seconds is typically more of the sweet spot. Um, not only to have a, a good carryover to you know strength, but also like power production. But you get over the six second mark, the super slow, you know, eastern durations, the eight to ten seconds, you lose max strength. And the carryover and transfer to power production is, is significantly reduced. And, you know, some people may ask why, but it's it's pretty simple. I mean, it's just because of specificity. I mean, you mm -hmm. look at somebody like a volleyball or basketball player. I mean, you're, you're not, you know, taking six seconds to, you know, jump up or taking six seconds to land. Like, so it's just basically just, you know, specificity. Um, so there's really nothing like, you know, it's not rocket science behind it. Um, but, you know, but. When I presented on eccentrics, you know, you know, a couple dozen times over the last ten years, I talk about like the three-dimensional aspect of, of eccentric stuff. I and mean, you have the strength and conditioning aspect, like you have the time under tension, you have max strength, you have you know different tempos, and then you get into more the, the actual movement, the three-dimensional movement aspect, which is just you know walking, the deceleration, the acceleration aspect. Um, you know, one of the biggest aspects that people get injured, especially in multi-directional sports, is because they lack eccentric strength or they lack eccentric ability to decelerate. When you lack deceleration, you also have a lack of eccentric strength and stability that, that corresponds with that. So you see that very often as well. Um, and I know we like to, as an industry, we like to throw around terms and even make up a bunch of shit that, you know, it sounds smart, but it really <laughs> often doesn't really do much justice. Um, but people like to throw around like injury uh, prevention. And as I've gotten older and, and more wiser, especially with the science and, and the application process and the, and the real world training, I've come to kind of gear away from that instead of injury um, prevention. I like to talk about injury protection, right? Because mm. you can't 100% prevent injuries, right? But you can, you know, rest assured that you can try to protect as, as much as possible. Again, depending on, you know, obviously the sport and what you're doing. But so that was my PhD dissertation. Um, it was published in Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research uh, in March of 2017. It's been cited, I think, about 100 times, you know, or so since then. So, it's, you know, not not too bad. Um, I do have some plans to continue on, you know, with that, some review articles and such. 
Um, but yeah, so that's kind of like the that, that part of the question with the research background. And then the second part of your question is um, it really interesting to talk about because, you know, if you're an undergrad or graduate student, um, you don't really understand how either one research really works unless you have somebody, you know, a, a prof or somebody that's explaining how things work um, because, you know, people like to, there's a difference between citing research and actually doing, you know, research. Um, most people think they all they need to know is just I'll just read the abstract and it's all I need to know about the study. Um, if it came out uh, positive effects, great. If it came out negative effects, that's fine. You know, but you actually need to read the methodologies and you should be reading the discussion section as well because within the framework of the discussion section, they will talk about you know the pauses about the study. What are the limitations of the study? Mm -hmm. And there's always limitations to research, right? When people say, um, you know, like trust the science, like, <clears throat> do you really trust the science, or are you really trusting what your bias tells you? Okay, because there's a there's a huge difference, right? Like, you know, like I, I made a post today about, um, you know, does accommodating resistance. Uh, increase, uh, you know, maximum strength? And the answer is it does. Now, I only I only cited three studies, but rest assured, there's a whole host more of studies that actually talk about it with their own specific limitations in those studies. But, you know, for those listening, some of the biggest limitations to research uh, really lie within the methodologies, right? Yep. I mean, how many subjects do they actually have? Um, you know, what were their resistance training methods? What were they actually measuring if they're doing nutrition and body composition? You know, did they do a skin flow measurement? Do they do a DEXA? Do they do a nutrition, you know, log or dietary log? If so, which one did they use? Was it handwritten? Was it something like a MyFitnessPal? So these things are important to really learn and understand because just like, you know, nutrition training also has, excuse me, it's limitations as well because, you have to be able to control for as much things as possible. Like, for example, you know, if if in my study, um, we, it was lower body. So these, the subjects were not allowed to do any additional lower body work along with that. Like that was their lower body training, you know, twice a week. They could do upper body, you know, but when you're doing training studies and when you're doing upper lower body and you allow people to just train however they want, over and above or outside the scope, like you're you're not only biased in the results, but you but you're really um, not really going to get any see much type of effect, whether it's positive, you know, or negative. It could be a negative effect because you allow them to not have as much control. So, same thing with the nutrition aspect. So there's a lot of limitations to research. You know, one of the things about training studies that people don't understand is that they take a lot of time, um, and you're always going to see more acute studies, six weeks, yep. eight weeks, you know, ten weeks. Um, you know, versus, you know, six months or, you know, a year. So um, obviously we've gotten better um, you know, in terms of the research, you know, community, but, you know, personally what I want to see, and this is one of the reasons, um, and I don't talk about this a whole lot, but one of the reasons I actually got my doctorate was because I wanted to take my experiences working with athletes and clients leading up to that time. And then during, and of course, after, and take what most people, you know, uses essay like an anecdotal type of evidence and actually translate that into a in a real world training like you know research type of study to kind of be become like a hybrid one of the things i get frustrated with is when i see a lot of these training studies 
And the methodologies are, are almost identical. Everything is three sets of 10, four sets of 10, doing leg press, doing leg extensions, doing lat pulldowns. Now, for those listening, I mean, there's nothing wrong with those exercises. And I get for a lot of studies, it's oftentimes it's best to keep things a little bit more simple because even though you're, you want to have highly trained people in your studies, whether it's three years, five years, six years, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, the more advanced that you have your exercise selection or your methodology, you often have to do a familiarization period with those people yeah. to get them to try whatever it is that you're doing. Doing So if, if I'm doing a combinating resistance, you know, study, you know, or something with eccentrics, I have to get them familiar with the protocol first, right? So if, and if I don't, then they're going to make progress, right? And that's going to offset any potential outcome, you know, that, that you may see, you know, with, with your data. So you oftentimes have to do a familiarization protocol and that's fine. But what I personally want to see is I want to see some more like advanced types of training, you know, studies, uh, you know, uh, yes, bands and chains, but maybe, you know, uh, comparison you know, of the two, what are the outcomes? What are the similarities? Like, what are the differences? The utilization of different specialty bars. And we've seen that a little bit more in the last, you know, few years. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get a doctor is to kind of become more of like a hybrid, you know, between science and real world stuff. Um, and it's funny because uh, if, if somebody would have asked me maybe, you know, four or five, you know, years ago, it should have been, you know, like, John, like, you know, you really need to get more into the business side, you know, and learn more about that. And I was like, I don't know, you know, we'll see. And it's funny because now the tables have totally turned and now that's kind of what I've been transitioning into. Um, yeah. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's starting to come full circle. So there's a lot uh, that I wanted to say on the things that you just touched on. And one of the most important things I think for people to understand is that if you look for something that supports your current belief system, you will find it. Yep. Right. There is so much out there that if you want something to validate your feelings, your experience and your beliefs, you'll find it. You dig deep enough, you're going to find something and then go, aha, see, I was right. However, right. There are there is something to be said about understanding that most things operate on a spectrum. Right. It's kind of like talking about energy systems. Right. We're not always anaerobic or just aerobic. Right. There's undulation um, always, depending on that. Same with eating and storing body fat and oxidizing body fat. Right. It's a constant system. It's not an isolation of one. Um, and so when we talk about having your own biases, people that think that their hormones are fucked up or that they've reached their genetic potential or whatever it might be, right? You can find anything that will support that if you want to, or we can look at this with an, a third party eye and eliminate the bias and then look at what does the majority of the data say, like a meta analysis are great um, to be able to walk through those different things and see different studies that show different findings, but it can give us an idea of what the scientific community is suggesting based on their research. And then the yeah, other thing- yeah, I mean, one of the other things that I see often is, um, and this has been going on for a long time. And there, I mean, I, I love science. It's it's always evolving. It's always adapting. It's always getting better. It's never just, oh, here's what the science says. That's it. End of story. Don't ask any questions. But, and I can only speak within the framework of like, you know, nutrition, especially the training aspect is you have to know where the, the science kind of ends and the training and the lifting begins, right? Yeah. So because that was what I was going to say following up is that people use science as if it is the primary, but we don't have questions that lead to scientific hypotheses without observation in real life, right? That's, That's right. where the questions come from. And so science is typically behind what we're observing in real time. 
right? That's where we're getting the hypotheses. That's where we're designing the study. Hey, this is what I'm observing. I've seen this repeated over and over again. Can I find supporting evidence? And I think it's really important to say that science is not truth. It brings us closer to the truth with supporting evidence, but nothing in science is, oh, if you do this, this is true only because context varies. Genetics will vary. Training age varies. Population health varies, right? Durations of studies are limited, right? All of those things, the level of control that you have over the execution of what your findings are, right? There's so many different errors that can occur during that. And so I think it's really important to look at science as, oh, this is evidence that if I do more of this, there's enough in the literature to support that I will get closer to this outcome, but it's never cut and dry. It's never, this is true. It's, this is supporting based on these principles. And in this framework, we see a repeated outcome that is very similar across the board. Yeah. And, and that's why you have your review articles. That's why you have meta-analysis because it's just a collection and combination of all the previous science put together to create a large, you know, effect or, or effect size, um, you know, and from that, like, you know, you can extrapolate, even, you know, even further. Um, and I think is that people get caught up in um, I mean, for you alluded to it earlier, I mean, for every five studies on topic X that I find that, you know, confirm my confirmation bias, I can equally find another five that does not support that, right? I mean, almost with anything that that, that you find. So you have to be able to um, kind of unlearn to learn in a sense, um, you know, and that's one of the most dangerous things I think in training and science and even nutrition that, that still pervades today is having a, a very strong confirmation bias and only looking for evidence or reading, you know, evidence or books that that continue to confirm your confirmation bias. But then we can get to the next level of, of, of application and continue to elevate the game. Yeah. And I think all of that is really, really important for people to just try to conceptualize and understand. Obviously, like we're in the trenches of like understanding it all. Um, but in in context to people that see people on the internet look at evidence base think it to be true like just understand that there's evidence that supports what that person might be saying but there's also limitations to what they're saying and the context may not be applicable to you right and so understanding that is really important but i do want to shift gears a little bit so you talked a little bit about shifting gears from working with baseball players and those elite athletes that are in that college strength and conditioning situation a lot of people think that men and women and there's variations of training. So I would like to hear from you because I know that you went on to work in female sports afterwards. Um, what did that look like? Was there a dichotomy in how you programmed them? Was there a dichotomy in performance things and metrics? And there are certain things that you will focus more on for women maybe, um, but I'd like to hear that in your experience. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's a good question. It sort of can be discussed, you know, even, you know, to future conversations, but um Training wise, there's 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 not much difference. I mean, very little difference between, you know, training females and, and training males. And I'm just I'm just talking strictly about the training program. There's no female squats, you know, and female deadlifts and all this other silliness. Um, but you know, other things in terms of metabolic responses, then now you're getting into some differences, right? Um, you know, one of the things about training, obviously, with females and even clients in general. Um, especially when it comes to training studies, you have to take in the menstrual cycle, you know, pretty heavily, you know, when it comes to doing training studies, um, you, you, they can't, um, train as much or hard during those, um, you know, luteal phases, follicular phases, the menstrual cycle, um, you know, so you have to take those into consideration as well, you know, even dietary factors, whether it's, you know, could be small things like allergic reactions or, you know, uh, bloating or, 
you know, um, dietary, you know, you know, whatever it is. So those things have to be taken into consideration, but, you know, training wise, and I made a, a, some previous posts about this before, you know, training wise in terms of, you know, gaining body strength, you know, uh, losing body composition, adding lean mass, you know, bone mineral density, like there, there's no changes, you know, with that, like you're not going to program something totally different for, you know, a male, you know, you know, versus a female, uh, you know, in fact, if you, if you actually just, people just need to fucking read, you know, more um, and, you know, bone mineral density. I mean, you know, you're not going to increase bone mineral density in, in three weeks, you know, or four weeks, like you're looking at six months to a year. Um, so, you know, when you see these, you know, research studies, especially in the medical literature um, about, you know, resistance training women, um, you know, and trying to reduce the effects of osteoporosis, all that type, they're not doing a DEXA scan like every three or four weeks. Um, it's going to be once every six months, you know, to a year. Um, in fact, a, a prime example, you know, my mom um, is going to be 74. Actually, she just turned 74 last week. Um, you know, and she's deadlifted 150 pounds, you know, um, no belt, no straps. Um, and her bone mineral density is, is off the chart. Uh, compared to other uh, counter per age, uh, you know, in the same sex. So, um, you know, those are some of the things that obviously bone mineral density can change with, with both males and females over time. Um, but but training wise, I don't know why people try to program totally different, um, you know, for, for males and females, because there should be very little difference um, in terms of the actual training, but obviously biological differences, of course, you know, there are there are differences, um, which which can maybe directly or indirectly affect the, the training outcome. Um, so you have to be mindful of those. Yeah, we're definitely getting into more of the nuance of physiology and things along those lines that's that slightly differ. Um, but even in the context of a menstrual cycle, I have women who don't have any issues and then I have some where it's debilitating. So it's always an individual kind of variation on those different things. Um, but a couple of things that I wanted to dive into with you is with your experience working with strength versus endurance athletes, sorry, track versus maybe football, baseball. What do you see as far as nutrition dynamics uh, that you, if you did any nutritional supplementation or support there, and as far as training the endurance athlete versus the strength athlete, where are the biggest differences in your experience there? Okay, let me start with the training one for like endurance versus more like strength sports. I mean, there are significant, you know, differences. I mean, you can't just program the same because that would be just silly and ridiculous and somebody really yep. doesn't know really what they're doing. Um, but with endurance athletes, um, it, it used to be, and this was back like in the 90s and probably half to maybe you know mid 2000s, um, is that, you know, endurance athletes need to be training more of an endurance, you know, spectrum, right? So lighter weights, you know, um, you know, higher, you know, moderate, you know, higher rep ranges. That's not the case at all, um, because their activity and their sport actually requires them to do higher in like repetitive, you know, types of stuff. Yeah. You know, the cycling. You know, the the um, you know, the running. The you know, um, uh, stride length, stride frequency, all that type of stuff. So they already get that, right? So you're trying to enhance their strength. So they need to be doing very similar to what even gin pop people should be doing. You know, trap bar deadlifts, squats, a lot of single leg, you know, activity work. Some of the biggest limitations with endurance athletes is that they don't do a lot of heavy lifting um, and they should. I mean, it's, somebody will say, well, wh why, why does a runner, you know, or a cyclist, you know, need to be doing resistance training? And I'm like, do you know anything? Uh, because the last time I checked, when you when you you know, and I'm not a professional cyclist, and you don't really need to be to understand you know common sense. When you utilize the foot pedal stroke, you use strength and power within the legs. And also, the last time I checked, 
most runners and endurance athletes don't run on flat surfaces the entire length of their competition. There's aspects of going uphill, going downhill, accelerating, deceleration, deceleration, which lends itself to training various energy systems. There's periods of time throughout the competition that they have to put it in high gear, you know, go 40 miles an hour. Then they got to go up here. Okay. Got to go up to 65 or 70 miles an hour. So the energy output, um, it, it has a large variation to it. And you have to be ever able to train not only those energy systems, but you have, you have to be able to put in high force and power output. And where does that come from? That comes from your resistance training program. You know, so when, when you know, that comes from squats, deadlifts, trap bars, you know, rows, you know, having a strong post here chain, um, you know, with endurance athletes, I see a lot, their biggest limitations is low back glutes and hamstring, you know, strength, um, their ability to, you know, accelerate or decelerate. So again, I mean, a lot of people think the, more complex the program, the better the outcome is going to be. And that's not the case at all. Simplicity is often the most sophistication, if you will, in terms of the exercise selection process, um, because it's not going to take a very long period of time to see what you're doing training-wise. We'll have a very large transfer to their, to their, that's what I would say with endurance, um, you know, versus strength sports. But again, like you take a sport like golf, don't need max strength. You don't need acceleration. Um, you know, you need thoracic and hip um, power and rotational power, uh, you know, and, and mobility. Nobody gives a crap about how much you deadlift, you know, with golf. It's technique, it's finesse, uh, it's even things like depth perception um, and, um, you, you know, all that stuff that comes with the sport. So, you know, for a sport like golf, rotational power, um, you know, core stability, working in different planes of motion, being able to utilize, you know, transverse plane motion and frontal plane stability. Um, you know, because and having a high end degree of cardiovascular endurance, because, you know, when you go play nine holes or 18 holes golf, you're not out there for 20 minutes, you're out there for maybe three or four hours. Um, and that may not seem like a big deal, but you do that repetitively every weekend, you know, several times a month, you know, several times a year. And now you have to create a very large, um, good aerobic base coupled with, um, you know, your golf technique and, you know, rotational power. So, you know, people need to, people have too much of a micro mindset and need to be able to think of, on a macro scale and level. It's okay. What are you doing? Not only today, but how's that going to affect you? Like in six weeks from now, you know, 10 months from now or whatever it is, it's the same thing like with the Olympics. They don't, they're not training today or next week. They're training for the upcoming tournaments, you know, and then the qualifiers and then, you know, the Olympic trials, et cetera. So there, there's a lot, to, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. I would say, in principle, like one of the biggest things that I try to emphasize with people, again, goes back to the idea of a spectrum, right? If you want to be a functionally health and fit person outside of the sport that you are pursuing in this moment, but long-term, you want to have a little bit of everything. You should be training every energy system. If your primary goal is endurance, you still need to supplement with strength. We still need to be proactive about protective mechanisms that can prevent injury or, or at least help support um, your ability to overcome that. It's first boiling down, like what is the primary goal that we're focused on, right? Because the, the majority of the training volume will go towards that, right? Um, but then we need to look at supplementation. A lot of people don't do unilateral work. There's so many people that lift heavyweight that have massive imbalances and they have prolonged injuries and strains and all the things because they never worked in mobility or unilateral work. So understanding that every great program is going to be very simple, but work every element and then distribute volume effectively towards the goal that you are currently pursuing or long-term pursuing, whatever that endeavor might be for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's something that people, um, a lot of it, I mean, there's a lot of great things about social media, obviously, but I think one of the things that has become more um, offsetting is people think like the more, again, the more complex, 
the more effective. It's not the case at all. You know, when you see high-end athletes and elite athletes doing complex things, people think, oh, that's awesome. I I'm going to try that. But what people need to realize is that, yeah, the social media stuff is great, but what you see is, is a small snapshot of their entire program. It might be what you see is about maybe three to five percent of their entire program that, th that they actually really do. And a lot of times, you know, I know a lot of people that that post the stuff that they the stuff that they post is only 10 percent of what they're actually really doing. So they post the 10 percent, 100 percent of the time. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, and I think just for the sakes of like likes, views, and interaction, the more that you can make something complicated, right, the more people will inherently buy into it, especially if it validates a belief as to why they aren't where they want to be, right? They want to be told that they're not wrong. And so it's like, if you can say, oh, you're not getting this because you're not doing this one specific thing that is very unique and micro in the grand spectrum of the fact that your habits haven't been there, your systems haven't been there, your consistency is not there, but it's this one thing. If you can get people to believe that, then what are you doing, right? It's again, it's kind of a self-serving thing versus actually driving what will help more people. Um, so it's like that shiny object syndrome along with insecurity and doubt and seeking out validation of a belief that you currently have outside of all the things you currently just don't do, right? Because nobody wants to accept that ownership and that level of, well, I'm not consistent. I'm not really progressively ordering. I'm not actually working at this high RPE. I'm not actually pushing and forcing adaptation, right? My my nutrition is everywhere. I give up every time it's snowing outside, right? Those types of things that actually surmount to the outcome in which they have Ex, ex existed in um to this point because you are and always will be the product of your choices and so it's not one specific exercise or one specific food or one specific program that's going to get you there and that's it's, the and that's the problem yeah and that's the problem is that people you're right that's the problem people think like if i just do x then everything else is going to get better it's you know the same thing happens with supplementation um well i took creatine but it really didn't do anything for me okay well, what was your sleep pattern like? What was your overall to total caloric intake like? Are you training different energy systems? Are you training heavier? Are you are you more genetic susceptible uh, to you know responding to creatine? Because you know seventy percent of people respond, about thirty percent of individuals you know do not. So you're right. That's the people just want to look at X to fix all the problems when they need to be fixing all this other foundational stuff first, right? And be consistent with that. And I can tell you, I mean, especially in society, I mean, the, the level of accountability these days is, is just very, very subpar. Um, yeah. People are not holding themselves accountable and thus they can't hold other people accountable. Um, you know, and that's something that I, I really, I have never ever um, programmed something for somebody or individual group of athletes that I've not tried or at least done to some capacity, right? Because if I can't do it, why am I going to program it for somebody else if I don't know how it looks, how it feels, you know, giving them, you know, feedback from myself and, and, and coaching in a way that allows them to either do the movement efficiently, um, you know, and, and all that type of stuff. So yeah, I, I, I am a tried and true practitioner and I, I really try to just lead by example. Yeah, that's one of my biggest core values is leadership and it's always leading by example. I would never, ever ask a client to do things that I have not done because I think that that's absolutely ridiculous. And I also think it makes it almost impossible to coach them through it because you have no idea the psychological or emotional ties that they have. Because I think, unfortunately, 
in health and fitness, we only look at the aesthetic and the weight. And then we drive people's psychology to only focus on the aesthetic and the weight. But if you've never put a heavy bar on your back and you don't know what that feels like, what is comfortable, what's uncomfortable, what is injury versus, you know, what is fatigue, right? There are different things. And if you don't have that experience, you can't possibly walk somebody through the psychology of that experience. And so being able to tie them both together, I think is what makes a great coach. And on the other side of being a great coach, a lot of people will invest in people that they see doing well in a sport versus actually being qualified to be a great coach. And I bring this always back to my basketball experiences because the best coaches I ever had were not the best athletes, but they understood every element of the sport with such specificity and such, such expertise that they could map out every little thing, right? It's, it's the understanding of the beauty of the art of what it is that you're coaching through. Um, And I think a lot of people get that very confused. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I I find the same uh, over the last, you know, several years. I mean, the the best players are not often the best coaches, right? And then, you know, and, and, but the opposite tends to be, you know, more true. I mean, you may not be as great of a player, but you're going to end up being a, a good coach, um, and there's obviously some exceptions out there, you know, for example, yeah. um, you know, but yeah, I mean, in, in most sports, I mean, I can tell you, um, you know, I may not, you know, have been, you know, five times like world's strongest man, but I could coach somebody very, very well. And, um, you know, with the aspects of, of that sport, um, you know, even lifting, I may not, you know, squat a thousand pounds, but I can almost guarantee you that I might be a better coach than those that actually do that because I can talk about the science you know, the biomechanics and all that stuff too. So it, it's, it's not just not, no knowledge is great, but it's the application. It's the execution. It's the coaching style. It's coaching communications, dealing with different types of personalities, you know, being in, you know, leadership types of roles. Um, and that's the other problem I have in today's society, but um, you know, people just don't want to step up, you know, and, and actually lead um, because they're afraid of what people might think, what other people, you know, might say, but you know what? You know, if you're getting criticized, for, you know, for stuff constantly, well, you're probably doing a lot of really good and right things. <laughs> yeah. And I think on the other side of that, too, is it goes back to the principle of extreme ownership, because as right. a leader, everything that happens is your fault, right? If you tell someone to do something and it doesn't go well, well, it was your order to tell them to do that. And so if you can't take accountability and you have struggles with owning the fact that you played a part in that and you want to blame other people right? Well, that's where you can't lead. You can't possibly lead because you will never be the victim of anything when you step into a leadership role, which then exposes you to criticism, hate, and negative feedback. But you have to have a strong core to go, I needed to hear that. I needed to pivot, right? And that's how you learn. And people are always afraid of failure. And I always tell you, you have to fail forward. You don't walk into a gym, pick up a basketball, become Kobe Bryant. You just don't. Right. So you have to take the feedback, watch the game, take, look at what you, where you made mistakes, where were your shortcomings, where should you have pivoted? What gap did you see right now? You can fix the deficit that you have, and then you can continue to build skills on top of that. But if you can't receive feedback and you just have this wall of victimhood in front of you and nothing is ever your fault, and it was somebody else's to blame and it's, oh, my life situation, my circumstances, whatever it might be. You're never going to be able to find out all that it is you could be, which I think is actually incredibly sad because I think if you owe anything to yourself in your life, it's to find that out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's, you know, I, I can't stand the victimhood, you know, culture mentality, you know, in, in today's world, because you're right, you're never going to be able to hold yourself accountable because, and if you don't, you're not gonna be able to hold anybody else accountable. You know, one of the things that I, I've asked people is if, if I'm leading in a position, 
Um, and this has happened a few times. I'm instructing them to do, you know, X, you know, telling them to do X. Here's how we do it. Here's how, here's why, here are the outcomes. During that process, if I feel that they are unable to execute on that to their maximum ability, their maximum potential, and oftentimes there's a difference between how they execute it and how I want them to execute yeah. it. Sometimes there's, sometimes that's, you see, that's the difference between, you know, being a, either a boss, you know, and a leader. But I've asked people is, you know, if they're not executing on the way that it needs to be done, I will ask them at what point, you know, did I fail you in the communication process, you know, during this task? Because if they tell me how I miscommunicated or failed them, then they know from here on out, I know how to better communicate that to the next person. And then they can make the other person better Then I can make myself better Then I make other people better. And you start to elevate the game of leadership. And that, that's ultimately how, you know, and these, these negative things and these limitations are often um, how and why people either go out of business or not effective leaders. And, and, it, and, and it draws, you know, negative culture to companies. Yeah, absolutely. And culture is everything. I mean, one bad egg can ruin an entire thing. Um, and I think that, again, like that's where the ownership has to come. And if for whatever reason that happened, it's like I employed that person and I didn't see it. Now I need to know that I need to screen for this going forward or whatever it might be. Um, because I think that you have to have mental fortitude regardless, because life is hard. Shit happens to you. You'll go through bad periods. You'll go through storms, but history repeats itself. And you've come out of every storm previously. You will get through this one. So I always tell people like you need to align yourself with who you want to be on the other side of this because the time will pass and you can either sulk and you can self-sabotage and engage in behaviors that will bring you further back or you can go, okay, this sucks. I'm not super happy about this, but I can focus on these variables right now to push through the season of my life and come out better on the other side, right? There's always something that you can control and you have to, again, it goes back to ownership, like take ownership of where you are, what's happened and where you can go from here. Exactly. Um, control, control what you could control. Okay. You know, the world may be on fire, but you know what? I can control how much I drink, how much I eat, you know, the thoughts that I say, you know, thoughts that I feel, you know, you, someone's frequency is what you frequently see. Um, you know, if you're surrounded by negative people all the time, you know what, you're probably going to become that too. Um, whether it's in business, you know, training, leadership roles, um, you know, I, if stop, people need to stop being around individuals that are not doing the things that they really want to do. If you're trying to create and build shit, you got to be around people that are currently doing that or have already done that. Not hang out with people from high school because that's what all you know and that's what you're around. I mean, if you want to be successful and win big at high levels, you're not only going to have to make some sacrifices, but you're going to have to grow thick skin because the people are going to criticize you and that, well, you know, I don't think you're going to be able to really do this. And then when you actually do it, those very same people are going to say, you know what, John, you know what, Kay, like I always believe in you. I'm proud of you. And that may be true in that they may be proud of you, but they didn't always believe in you. Right. So you have to be around people that. Um, you know, have similarities and, and and want to grow big and do big things and create fulfillment and, and contribute to society and, and become better leaders because this world and this country, um, you know, needs better high quality leaders. And you know what? It starts with you. It starts at home. It starts with your family. It starts at the gym. It starts with what, you know, what you eat. It's all these small things that add, add up to, you know, to big positive outcomes. Yeah, I think all of that is really important. And one of the best pieces of advice that I could give anyone is never take advice from someone that isn't where you want to be. It's right. stupid, right? There are people that will tell you how to live your life, how to operate your business. I've never run a business. Well, I don't need your opinion. You're not doing what I want to do. 
right? So it's just one of those things where you have to orient yourself and kind of tune out the white noise and focus on what's before you. Um, and it's funny that you say it's it's the people that don't believe in you that always come back to be like, I believed in you. And it's just a funny uh, natural experience of my life. It's really. true. It's, it is, it is very much so. Um, but I do want to end on this question uh, because I think it's important. So you've been through a lot of academics, you've been through a lot of schooling, you've been through a lot of education and you've kind of grown into, you know, now running things from a different perspective. And my curiosity is what are some of the biggest things that you've changed your mind about throughout that? Um, just overall in general, you mean? Yeah. Um, I, comes I would, to mind. Yeah. I would say that, um, some of the biggest things I've had to learn over the last couple of years is just learning more about how the business world, you know, operates not only from a, a micro, but from a macro. That could be things that just, you know, how, how and who runs the world in a sense, you know, local, you know, the, on the basic economics, but also within, you know, starting a business, how to grow a business, you know, what do you need? What are, what are some essential foundations that you have to have to, to really succeed? Um, what do you need to continue to grow? You know, learning more about, um, it, whether it's, you know, social media or just like marketing, you know, advertising, because they're not the same thing, um, you know, creating a brand, um, you know, reaching out to people, you know, becoming more involved. Like there's so many things that I, I have done in the past, but it's like, you don't realize you're doing it until you get to the next level, the next level higher than that. Then it, the, the pieces start to become, you know, more uh, uh, apparent and you can create a larger puzzle piece, you know, if you will. So, so those are the things I've had to really learn the most over the last, you know, couple of years. Um, and, you know, one of the things about academia that nobody learns, um, and even if you go through business school, um, you don't really learn, you know, much of this either, but I can only speak for, you know, my uh, educational background is nobody ever teaches you anything about the business side. Um, they don't teach you about, um, you know, how to start a website, what do you need to do to create, a, you know, an LLC, you know, what about branding, how to create a niche, um, you know, how, you know, you need an email list, you need marketing, you need advertising. Nowadays, um, you know, you're going to have to do, you know, high quality video content. Um, you know, you need a, a large social following, you have to bring value to people. Um, and, and people have different interpretations of what value is. Uh, yeah. Sorry, uh, people, but uh, value is not getting on, you know, TikTok and Instagram and, you know, showing your half naked body. That's not value. Um, value is ultimately solving people's problems. Um, and, and that's what really people should be in business for. Yeah, you make money, of course, but, you know, what problems are you solving and how are you helping people? Um, so those are some of the biggest things I've had to learn more of the last few years that I never got in my in my previous education experience. And I think of um, people in, in programs would teach more of, of the business side. Um, you will see and have, you know, more younger individuals wanting to go into that space more. And, and, and let's not, let's just be, you know, candid here. Like it is, it is hard. Um, you know, the, the hard way is ultimately the easy way and the easy way is the hard way. Um, so those are some of the bigger things, challenges I've had to learn over the last couple of years. And um, even though I, I'm getting better at it, it's it's still going to be hard. I've accepted the hard. Um, and and it, it's just, it's day in and day out. It's, you know, working the power list, getting the things done you have to get done. And I can tell you one, ultimately what it comes down to. So if people can do that, then they can win on a daily and weekly basis and, and they can win big in life. Yeah, I will not sugarcoat business whatsoever. It is hard. It is, especially as the owner, you are at all the risk. You take all of the fallback. You are the face. You are responsible for everything. Um, and I don't think people really consider that. I I see entrepreneurship as something that is very trendy 
um, because everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, right? Um, but if you can ride the midline of it, and again, there are seasons where it will be good and there are seasons where it will be difficult. And it's one of the things that will stack your skill set faster than any other endeavor in your life. I've had to learn so many different things and I love the pursuit of it because it makes me better, right? I become better because I become more valuable because I learn more skills. Um, and, and that for me is the journey because it helps me. Like I said, my mission in life is to find out all that it is I could be. So if it's constant pursuit of evolution within myself, as the demographic changes, as the economy changes, as people change, as psychology changes, as, as we learn more and more about these things, I inherently understand how to connect, how to create communities, how to create branding, how to bring people in and understand them and create solutions because that's what businesses are. People are paying for solutions. Right. So if you can't understand that's what right. solution you're providing and you're not doing it in a way that's actually serving people, your business will fail. Right. That is like the end of it. And I think that that's very empowering. I love business, so I could talk business all day, um, but it's because it's one of the steepest and fastest learning curves that I've had to throw myself down. I mean, really, I was a coach um, and then it just fell into my lap, really. And I was like, well, this is where my heart is. I have to go for it. Um, and it was again, the scariest leap I've ever taken on you know, myself, uh, the biggest bet I've ever put on myself, uh, but definitely the most rewarding thing, um, regardless of how stressful it is and how many nights you don't sleep and how much work there is to be done and managing people and all of the things. I, I still uh, would never trade it because every mistake that I make is a lesson that I learn. And like I said, I've had to learn a lot and I've had to learn very quickly. <laughs> Oh, no doubt. Amen. <laughs> awesome. I'm very happy to have had you today, Jonathan. I'm sure there'll be follow-up questions. So we will uh, definitely plug another one, but I appreciate you today. Oh, I'll yeah. plug all Thank of your you. social media handles and everything below for people. So if you guys have questions, feel free to reach out to him and we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you so much. Bye.